An agent is simply a person who hacks, acts on hacks. <laughs> That'd be a lumberjack. That would not be an agent. But if you're an agent who's a lumberjack, you could be a lumberjack who's an agent, right? A person who acts on the behalf of another person or group. So you can have IRS agents who acts on behalf of the government, ATF, FBI, all the initial agencies. You can be a special agent of the FBI. B-I. Secret Service agent, Central Intelligence Agency, 007 is a British secret agent. You can be a double agent. You can also be an insurance agent. And why I put those two together, I have no idea whatsoever. Sorry, I just have a little fun with you. You can be a sports agent. You can be Agent K, but there's really only one of those in Men in Black. You can be a buyer's agent, a seller's agent, agents of sealed if you prefer cartoons, a free agent who is anything but free. You can be a travel agent. You can be a change agent. Most formalized in our country, an agent that has the legal authority to act on your behalf. Closely related to agent is surrogate, a substitute. Literally, the definition is a substitute, especially a person deputizing another for a, for a specific role. Okay, you're enlisting someone to do a specific role that you are either unable to do or unwilling to do or can't do because of time or distance. And obviously, surrogacy, the idea that we think of most often is being a surrogate mother. I had a friend uh, down in Prior Lake who had a friend who was unable to carry a child, okay? And so she said, I will be a surrogate mother for your twins. Now, I don't even know what that means. But some of you do. What would that be like to carry someone else's child or two of them? And it invites the intriguing question, if you could, would you? Would you do it? I can't, so it's not even a discussion for me. But, but if you could, would you? Say, say a dear friend, a sister, asks you to carry a child for her. Would you do it? Small talk is one of those things, right, that just happens. Okay, we talk about the weather, we talk about all this kind of stuff. I had a couple of friends in my house this last week because Tanya wants to do this remodel project down in the basement, taking Will's bedroom, okay, and turning it into an office. Sorry, Will, you're no longer welcome at home. And then changing the family room from something that, that was kind of kind of disused and disrepaired, okay? And so Steve and Steve and, and Bruce were in my house along with this old guy named Don, and, and there was just like this nonstop, just smattering of small talk and chattering about this, that, and the other thing. And, and as you hear it, you realize they're doing life. And it's fun to enter in. It is so refreshing. Small talk where life is real, from travel plans to weather to dear friends. Our text today, Philippians chapter 2, verse 18, rather 19, I hope in the Lord, okay, and really that is, we're going to take two phrases, okay, a little bit out of context, okay, not terribly out of context, we're just going to lift them off the page, we're not betraying the original meaning, but we're going to take two phrases for our memory work this week. I hope in the Lord, okay, verse 19, first part of it, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you too to you soon. Okay, that's Paul talking. I hope in the Lord is the first phrase, okay? The second phrase is verse 24, I trust in the Lord, okay? So those are the two memory work for the work, okay? So I hope in the Lord and I trust in the Lord. Okay, so just try it with me. I hope in the Lord, I trust in the Lord. See, super easy, okay? Scripture memory doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be crazy. It can just be, hey, I hope in the Lord, I trust in the Lord. Try it one more time. I hope in the Lord, I trust in the Lord. See, 
brilliant. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord. I hope in the Lord. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul's sending Timothy to visit his friends at Philippi. Paul and Timothy. We know a few things about Timothy. Certainly there's a couple books in the Bible that are named after him, that are letters to him, written from Paul's hands. His mom is a Jew. His dad is a Gentile. We know next to nothing about his dad. He gets connected to Paul early in his life, Timothy's life, and he comes to faith in Jesus because of Paul's witness. What we also know about Timothy from the biblical record lightly, is that he wasn't a rock star, okay? He wasn't this, this gifted order. He wasn't this brilliant individual. He wasn't an individual who would stand out in a crowd and you'd go, oh, he's the man. I want to follow him. He was young. Paul frequently tells him, hey, don't apologize for your age. I no longer have to worry about that. See all this gray? Isn't that beautiful? Guy once told me, I've told you this before, you'll be a good preacher once your voice changes. Timothy was young. He was mellow. He was super chill. And he's not the Hulk. He wasn't, his stature wasn't imposing. He wasn't the guy that you probably would have chosen. But Timothy is the closest thing to a son that Paul has. And Timothy is the closest thing to Paul that Paul has. And Timothy is probably the closest thing to Jesus that Paul has. And there's danger, right, in making that comparison. But, but remember, all of chapter 2 starts with this idea of, of Jesus as servant, Jesus willing to die, Jesus discarding who he could have been on planet Earth to be who God wanted him to be. Instead of a powerful political leader, Jesus chose to be a servant. And Timothy has servanthood in spades. Timothy seeks the good of Christ. It's played off against other people in the first century who even though they would identify as Christ followers, as people for whom Jesus was really important, Paul says they're not concerned about your welfare. But Timothy is. He seeks the good of Christ Timothy doesn't seek power or positional authority. And that's a challenge. Because one of the things that, that, that is so attractive to us as humans is the ability to have positional power over someone else. To get our will done. And this has been true throughout the ages, you know? And in broad, big strokes, people have used faith as a weapon. I mean, you think about things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the Salem Witch Trials or, or folks making an argument from the Bible for slavery. Or, or even today, the tendency for wrapping ideas in faith. 
But when you scratch the surface just a little bit, there's this vexing desire for power. And then there's a suggestion that that is compatible with the life of teachings of Jesus. And it's troubling for me. And I wonder, is it true in my own life? Do do I seek the good of Christ or do I seek my own positional authority? Is it true in our lives, the interactions that we have? Are we seeking the good of Christ in others and in the world around us? Or are we seeking positional authority? Are we seeking power? Are we seeking the advancement of self? It certainly seems to be true in our society. And and how can we challenge it? There's people that say, hey, it's no problem at all. It's, It's no problem. There's no problem. I don't enter this fray lightly. And the place that I keep on coming back to is verses like this, where Paul seems to be saying, you know Timothy's track record. He is not in it for himself. And in these few verses about two people who are once in the history type of folks, Paul and Timothy, you have this essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Paul's like, Timothy, we're in it together. It's like, it's like a father and a son who enjoy being together, working, you know? As we're in advance of doing this remodeling project in our basement, right? I needed Will to, to move some things, and, 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 and it's so cool to work with him because we know each other well enough that we pick up something and we carry it out, and, and, and nary a word has to be said. You just know what hap- has to happen next. Paul's like, Timothy and I, it's like a father-son, side by side, picking up something heavy and carrying it. Barclay argues, Timothy was willing to go for the sake, for the cause of Christ. And I really think that's the take-home. That even with history, and never be afraid of history, never be afraid of of having to apologize for something that's wrong in our past. That's the essence of the gospel. Jesus came to forgive. The take-home is that, that, that there's been this faithful thread of people who have been unswayed in their commitment to Christ. And to be sure, it's where I want to find my life and my work and my reputation. And it's the place to which I advocate more and more If you think your guy is leaving office and bad things are going to happen, if you think your guy guy is coming into office and good things are, it's not about the guy in the office. Please, please, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that is where our identity is to be discovered. This last week, an individual wrote me a note and said, hey, really appreciated what you said last week about, about not grumbling and not disputing, and, and but the world around me is just, what do I do? This is what we do. We behave in keeping with the cause of Christ. We, we, we act in the best interests Not some temporal, positional power that we seek, but we act in the best interest of moving a person closer to Jesus Christ. 
forgot the tapas this week. The tapas actually isn't a Spanish thing at all. It's a, it's a Korean thing. Have you ever had kimchi? Oh, it's wonderful. Okay, um, uh, cabbage to kimchi. Okay, here's what you do. You salt cabbage leaves. Okay, so like every culture has its vibe of, of what they do with cabbage. You have cabbage soup in the Soviet Union. You have uh, coleslaw in the United States of America. You have sauerkraut in, in Deutschland. Okay, and you have kimchi in South Korea. And basically what they do is they take, they take cabbage and they salt the leaves to remove the water and then you add a bunch of stuff to it. Okay, coat them garlic, ginger, onions, scallions, shredded radishes, carrots, okay? And then you put it in this pot, okay? And then you seal the pot. And basically, that whole thing ferments. And in the truest sense of the word, if you could take that and put that in the ground and just let it stew for like four or five months, that's phenomenal. It ferments, it gets soft, it has this really strong, amazing flavor to it. And if you want to try kimchi in the local area, you want to try Main Street Ale House, where they have a bulgogi bowl, bulgogi bowl, with kimchi in it. It's just absolutely amazing. Okay, Kimchi, small plate for the week, back to the text. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Okay, Epaphroditus, doesn't that sound like a fun name? Wouldn't you like to have a name like Epaphroditus? It's a derivative of Aphrodite, okay? And it, it means charming. It means uh, handsome. It might mean this. It, it was a common name in the first century, Epaphroditus. I want to think that Epaphroditus really had tight, curly, dark hair, dark complected, and, and he'd introduce himself as like, hi, I'm Epaphroditus, and I put the fro in Froditus. I mean, I just, there's a part of that, no, no hint that that is actually true. I'm just making it up at any way. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Sending him back home because he had been sent to Paul by the church at Philippi. And the church at Philippi, I made a mistake. Eric was wise to offer a correction segment a couple weeks ago. I said that Philippi was named after a Roman Caesar. It wasn't. It was named after a Macedonian king, Philip II. Okay, but it was still a proud Roman town. (sighs) That feels better. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, put the fro in Phroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing to see you all and has been distressed because you have heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. We don't know what had him, but something had him. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There seems to be a reference, and we could jump to a conclusion. Are there two near-death experiences? Is there an illness? Is there a mission? Or is it one? I think it's probably just one. And the implications are that something was left undone by the church at Philippi. But it's probably more along the lines of Epaphroditus was sent to Paul in Rome by the church at Philippi because he needed something and they couldn't deliver it. Not that they weren't willing to deliver it, they just couldn't because the distance was great. 
at any rate, Epaphroditus is being sent back, okay? And, and you have this sense of, of who he is and what he is about, and it's kind of like a tough mission kind of human. He nearly died serving Paul and serving the church and serving Jesus. The more telling of the words is verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. The word risking in the first century would have been a term that you would have seen in, uh, you know, for a gambler, a person who, was, who would risk it all on the, on the shake of a dice. It's not about recklessness for Epaphroditus. It's about his willingness. This last week in Christianity Today talked about the 10 most dangerous places to live in the world if you're a follower of Christ. I mean, <laughs> grab the article. It's intense. It's absolutely intense. There's this, uh, one story of this gentleman, uh, sub-Sahara Africa. Uh, town is being, being, being um, rounded up by uh, Boko Haram, and, and basically they're asked, are you an infidel or are you a Muslim? Line up the town. Came to this man, the man said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not an infidel and I'm not a Muslim. And he knelt down on his knees and started praying. And they took him out. (laughs) This is mind-blowing, right? Willing to risk life, willing to say that Jesus Christ is the most important thing. It's not a recklessness that Epaphroditus possesses, but a willingness to do what needs to be done for the cause of Christ. And these two individuals, Paul talking about them, really reflects and displays some simple realities that exist in the first century. It's almost like small talk with a larger purpose. In verse 23, you get the sense that Paul's not totally sure how this is going to work out for him. I mean, we always see Paul as this giant of the faith, okay? This individual who has everything going on. I hope in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. These are the words that we associate with Paul. But as Paul writes and thinks about the realities, betrayed in this small talk, maybe not betrayed, displayed in this small talk. Verse 23, he's not totally sure how this is going to work out for him. And verse 27, grateful that Epaphroditus has been healed because he would have had sorrow upon sorrow, which suggests that he already had sorrow. And this individual who uh, argues for the Christian faith as well as anyone, suggests that there are things in life that cause a great deal of pain. In verse 28, Paul wanting to be less anxious, which again would suggest that Paul possesses some anxiety in his life. And you have the reality in in these few short verses of what it means to live even when you are confident as faith about faith as Paul is. You have the reality of what it means to live, that the struggle is real, that life is real, that there are anxieties, there are sicknesses, there are death, even hard times. 
And sometimes it's so easy to forget about the most important things. This last week, uh, Thomas, rather, Nathaniel Popper reported in the New York Times financial section about an individual who is a programmer in um, San Francisco, uh, Stefan Thomas. He's a German-born programmer. Did you see this story? It's really an intriguing story. He's a multimillionaire, okay? He's made, he's made a ton of money in the Bitcoin bit. Who's Bitcoin? Anyone Bitcoin? No. Okay, good. So he's like, he's like a multimillionaire, like $220 million in Bitcoins, right? The problem is that he lost the paper where he wrote down the password for his iron key. He has 10 guesses. And if he doesn't get the password right within those 10 guesses, the default position of the piece of hardware that he has to protect his $200 million fortune in bitcoins will forever lock up, and, and the money's gone. He's tried eight times. He's down to his last two. It's intriguing because of the estimated 18.5 million bitcoin, about 20% of the bitcoin that currently exists in the world, that has a value of about $140 billion has been lost or stranded for this very reason. Isn't that beautiful? Or maybe not. That's just intense. I mean, how could you forget something so important? Ten digits! Your key to unlock financial security for the rest of your life. How could you forget something so important? And that's why Paul writes, to help us remember something that is far more important than a fortune in Bitcoin. And in these few verses, about two people who are once in history type of folks, you have the essence of the most important thing. Everything else will fade away. Nothing that occupies the headlines today has eternal value. The bank accounts that we live on, that that are our financial security, the toys that are our pride and joy, they're not eternal. And I love where I live. And I want to improve my house and make it just beautiful, especially now that we have kids moving out. (laughs) Fabulous ideas. But it's not eternal. It's not. Political power, your party's in favor, your party's not in favor. It's not eternal. It's not. It's not. I would even go so far as to say who the president of the United States of America and doesn't have one iota of a difference on whether or not you're a follower or whether or not I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So if we can get that out of our heads, man, would life be better. In these verses, which seem almost like small talk, talking about travel arrangements, a kid that you like working with, We have the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a a servant. It's a servant. You have the human example, the surrogates of Jesus, the agents of Christ, being, embodying what Christ was about. 
And to that I draw our attention as the highest call that any of us can have to be a slave, a servant, an agent, a surrogate, carrying the message of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you, and they are familiar themes. There's nothing here that would catch us off guard or make us think, oh, we've never heard this before. You always seem to find a way to remind us of that which is important. And so we come, O oh great God. And in the midst of a world in which we live in, that often there is anxiety, a sense of wondering what's going to happen next. That you call us to trust in you. That you call us to tr hope in you. That you call us to follow your son, Jesus Christ. Find us faithful, O oh great God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.